If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be in verses 21 through 35 this morning as we continue our look at the various parables of Jesus. We come this morning to a parable that is entitled in many Bibles. Those titles aren't usually aren't there in the original manuscript. People have just labeled them, but many have, have titled this parable this morning, The Parable of the Unforgiving Servants. Verse 21 through 35. <clears throat> Hear God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, that's to Jesus, Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Saying 77 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, this is the rest of Jesus' answer, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and imploring him, saying, said, have patience with me and I will pay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the hearts. This ends the reading of God's words. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. We're going to be looking at forgiveness this morning. And forgiveness, forgiveness seems, it seems so simple. But when there is a large debt to pay, it's so simple, but when there's a large debt to pay. And June 17, 1966, two men walked into a diner in Patterson, New Jersey, and in cold blood, right at the table, shot three customers. Hurricane Reuben Carter, a celebrated boxer and an acquaintance, were charged falsely and convicted wrongly of this crime. And then in a racially charged, highly publicized trial, Hurricane Carter became his own jailhouse lawyer. After being convicted, he spent 19 years of fighting his own conviction, but he was finally released. 
And he was released and found not guilty. It was found that the original conviction was wrong, that he had been falsely charged and accused. And here's what he said about this injustice he endured. The question invariably arises, it has before and it will again, Reuben, are you bitter? And in answer to that, I will say, after all that's been said and done, the fact that the most productive years of my life between the ages of 29 and 50 have been stolen, the fact that I was deprived of seeing my children grow up, wouldn't you think I would have a right to be bitter? Wouldn't anyone under those circumstances have a right to be bitter and to never forgive? You see, when the debt is large, forgiveness is not so simple. Forgiveness is so simple, except when you have to do it all the time. It's so simple, but except when you have to do it all the time. A man, I'll tell you a story, a man was bitten by a dog. This is many, many, many years ago before there was great medical care, and he was afraid that the dog was rabid because he was growing quite ill, and so he went to the hospital and was confirmed that, that they did tests that the dog did indeed had rabies, and this was in the day when there was no medical solution for rabies, and so the doctor said, sir, I need to tell you that your condition is incurable and interminable. You need to start making plans and putting your house in order. The man was in shock. He sat up in the hospital bed and gathered his strength and said, Doctor, will you get me a pen and a piece of paper? And he began to furiously began writing over many, many sheets of paper. And the doctor came back an hour later, and the man was still writing on these sheets of paper. And the doctor said, I'm, I'm so glad to see how, how seriously you're taking this and that you're working on your will and putting your house in order. And the man responded this way. He said, This ain't my will, Doc. I am making a list of all the people that I'm going to bite. <laughs> Forgiveness is so simple, except that there's so many people to forgive. You see, we all have a list. It may not be written down, and you might not seek retribution by biting them, but we all have a list. All the people who have wronged us, the spouse who betrayed us, a coworker who cheated us, a friend who backstabbed us, a parent who neglected us. Well, the context of this parable is, is really clear because Peter asks a question, a very clear question. Poor Peter, poor, poor Peter. Peter, every time he opens his mouth, if you're very familiar with the Gospels, every time Peter opens his mouth, whether he's giving an answer or here, even when he's asking a simple question, Peter finds that he's in trouble. Here, the standard of the day, he thinks he's doing so well in this question. He says, Lord, do I have to forgive up to seven times? You see, the standard of the day promoted by the scribes and the rabbis was that you only had to forgive someone for a sin up to three times, and then beyond that, you didn't have to forgive them. And so Peter's thinking, well, I've been hanging out with Jesus. He appears to be a little more gracious than all these scribes and rabbis. And so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm, Jesus likes to push the envelope a little bit. And so I'm going to go with seven. Seven times you have to, uh, you have to forgive somebody. And Jesus looks at him and says, I, I know, it. I know, Peter. It's so hard, isn't it? It's so, so hard. So I'm going to give you a story to help you remember how important forgiveness is how important it is. Here's the big idea this morning, that Jesus is coming to answer Peter's question. Do I really have to forgive? Do I have to really have to forgive when it's a big sin 
Do I really have to forgive when somebody has done it over and over and over again? And Jesus provides us a story, and in this story, he gives us the standards, he shows the seriousness, and he shows us how we can have the strength to forgive. Is the standard, the seriousness, and the strength? That's what we're looking for at this morning at your three points. So let's begin. Jesus tells us in this parable and paints for us a picture of the standard for extending forgiveness. The standard for extending forgiveness. And there's a lot of subpoints this morning, so this is a little bit of a skeletal sermon, so bear with me. So three subpoints. And the first thing I want you to see about what Jesus says about the standard for extending forgiveness is what it is not. The standard for forgiveness is not amnesia or denial. There is a misunderstanding or a misreading of a beautiful passage in the scriptures that has led to a conscious or a subconscious understanding that forgiveness is simply putting the sin of others out of our minds. That we're just simply to ignore the sins of others. That passage is Jeremiah 31 verse 34 where it says this, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now here's the reality though. We have an omniscient God who doesn't forget. He doesn't, what it's talking about there when it talks about God remembering or not remembering your sins is not a memory word, it's a covenantal word. In other words, what he is saying is, I will not treat you in the covenant, in our relationship, I will not treat you according to what your sins deserve. That's what he's saying, because I have forgiven them. Simply because you remember an offense and the pain of that does not mean that you have not forgiven a person. In actuality, the beginning of forgiveness The beginning of forgiveness is not the denial that you were wronged, but it's actually the acceptance that you were wronged. You cannot forgive unless you can acknowledge that what someone did to you has hurt you, that they have done wrong by you, that you've experienced sorrow and suffering and pain. To not admit that you were wronged and pretend that you were not hurt will send you nowhere. It is merely pretending. There is no forgiveness there. The king... What we see here in this parable, that the king calls this man in because he has a debt. Forgiveness does not come by simply ignoring that the debt exists, but addressing the debt. In fact, this text is preceded by a text in verses 15 through 20 of Matthew chapter 18, where is the great place where we talk about what it looks like to confront somebody over their sin. That you cannot extend forgiveness if you have not also done the work to acknowledge that there is actually a hurt that has been done. And in fact, what we're going to see here is if you ignore the debt, then real forgiveness cannot happen, and it does not happen. This leads us to the second thing we see about the standard for ex- extending forgiveness. The standard for extending, of extending forgiveness is canceling a debt by bearing the cost yourself. In the story today, a man owes a massive debt, an enormous debt, In fact, we'll look at how massive it is later on. He pleads forgiveness for the debts, or he doesn't plead forgiveness. Actually, what he does is simply pleads for more time. He says, will you be patient with me, and I'll I'll pay it back. Don't don't punish me for my lack of paying off this debt yet. Forgiveness, the, the king looks at him and says, I will not make you pay for this debt. What does he do? He cancels the debt. Forgiveness is saying, I will cancel your debt to me. That when you have done something wrong to me, that when you have stolen something from me, that in forgiveness, that when you have taken something and you have offended me, is that I don't make you pay for that offense yourself. 
They don't have to be ashamed or repent adequately or grovel or pay you back. You don't inflict pain on somebody when you forgive them. But the debt has to go somewhere, right? If you smash into my car and I look at you and I say, I forgive the debt that you have incurred by smashing into my car, but someone still has to pay for my car to be fixed, And in forgiveness, what you're doing is saying, I will not incur the debt upon you, but I will pay for the debt myself. You absorb the debt. You don't make them pay for the debt. You take on the pain. Forgiveness is being willing to carry the pain instead of inflicting the pain back on them. Now, what does that look like practically in our lives as we seek to forgive somebody. Well, uh, Counselor Tim Lane, who actually came and spoke on relationships uh, for us at our previous conference in the fall, he uh, has shared this in one of his books. Here's what he says is what it looks like to, to, uh, to forgive a debt, a relational debt. If one, it means you promise you won't use it against them. You won't use it against them. Two, you promise you won't talk to others about their failure. You won't use someone's relational slander of you or something they did to you in order to go about and slander them behind their back. This is generally speaking, there are cases where you may have a responsibility sometimes where you need to share that, okay? There are certain places where you do need to share things with the authorities. That is different. Forgiveness is different than than pardon, governmental pardon. So therefore, if, if you have somebody who has done something terrible to your child, Physically, you go and you report that person. You may forgive them personally, but that doesn't mean necessarily you don't necessarily go and seek uh, justice to be done. But you do promise that you won't talk badly about them to others. You promise you won't use it against them. You promise you won't talk badly about them to others. And third, you promise that you will seek not to dwell on their failure. Now, this may be the most common form of the way in which we seek retribution, isn't it? Most of us are too chicken to actually go confront somebody. Most of us uh, don't have the, the goal to go and actually seek retribution. But many of us, if not all of us, are having constant conversations in our head where we are slandering and destroying somebody in the world of our minds. You see, there's a part of us that finds being wronged as a juicy delight, something that your mind can ruminate on for weeks and months at a time. It's a feast that you can chew on. But in forgiveness, what we do is what we decide to do is we drive the memory of that sin away. Now, it comes back over and over and over again. Think with me about the spouse who perhaps is an adulterous husband. And that husband may come home and they may seek to restore the relationship. But there are going to be days and there are going to be times where for that that spouse who has been cheated on, there will be moments of pain in which the memory of what has happened to them will come back. And what do they have to do in that moment? That I'm not going to ruminate on this. I'm not going to hold them against it against them. I'm not going to go and talk about their failures with a bunch of other people. I'm not going to sit here and think about my moral high ground over my spouse, but no, I'm going to drive away this thought. But not just drive it away, I'm going to drive it away by covering their sin with my love and with the love of Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing we see about the standard of what is forgiveness. It cancels a debt by you paying it. And then third, the standard we see here A standard of forgiveness is that it be continuous and countless. 
Forgiveness is to be continuous and countless. Forgiveness, you need to understand, is this. It is both a one-time promise or event and an ongoing process. Peter asked this question, how many times do I have to forgive? And what I want you to see is forgiveness is, is not just an event. You will say to somebody, I forgive you. The spouse that has the, 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 the husband that comes home, they say, I forgive you. They will have to continue to forgive them day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, every time the, the pain and the sorrow of that sin and that failure comes up in their heart and their minds. It's a one-time promise. It's kind of like a vow that you make on your wedding day that you then live into for the rest of your life. That's what it means. Your forgiveness of an individual offense is always going to be an ongoing process. So someone sins against you. On Wednesday, you say, I forgive you. Now on Sunday, you see them sitting four rows in front of you. And you see them raising their hands, and you're going, they don't deserve to worship Jesus like this. Look at them, the delight. They should be wallowing in their guilt. Right? That's what it means. You've, you don't just simply say it one time. You live into it day in and day out. Forgiveness is a promise. Second, though, we also see that it's to be, it's to be countless. And here we get to the heart of Peter's question, isn't it? It means the standard that Jesus gives to us is that you repeat your forgiveness as often as needed. So, forgiveness. Forgiveness, the standard is that you, you acknowledge it you bear the debt yourself. You cancel the debt and bear the cost yourself. It is continuous. And then what we see is that you then repeat it as often as is necessary. You ever taken a medicine that tells you the first time you take it, take two of them. And then if you still have the symptoms, take them again every time you have the symptom. That is what Jesus is saying here about forgiveness. Jesus said to Peter, Peter says seven times, his high standard is seven, and Jesus says no, 77 times. Is Jesus simply giving us a really higher standard? You think, he's, is, you think Jesus is really after of saying, it's actually not, it's not seven, Peter, it's 490. That's, that's the specific number. It's 490, Peter. No, that's not what he's saying. No, what he's saying, it's infinite. It's always, it is endless, it is countless. Every time someone needs you to forgive them, you forgive them. Jesus is saying to Peter, you never tally up. You never come to an end of your willingness to forgive others. Now here, here is where we begin to start asking some difficult questions, right? What about repeat offenders? Um, haven't we just come full circle if we ask that question? This person who just constantly violates me. The beginning of the sermon is Peter asking how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And Jesus is saying, as many times as it takes. Should I forgive someone who has not asked for it and doesn't think I, they need it? Well, that's a big one. In fact, I actually uh, heard a, uh, of, a, of a pastor, there's a, a, a curriculum that I was reading a couple years ago in which the, the person who wrote this curriculum actually says that you, you don't have to forgive somebody if they haven't repented. I think that's, a, I think that's flawed. I think that's a wrong thinking. I think he is mixing up forgiveness and restoration or reconciliation. Restoration, it takes two people and it takes both people moving towards each other. Forgiveness is a singular individual act that happens like all, all you. It is unilateral. You give it even if they haven't asked for it. Most of us say, I'll forgive if they're repentant, if they repent. But the question, what does unrepentance look like other than having to say, I forgive you over and over and over again? Right? That's what unrepentance is. An unrepentant sin is somebody who says, I'm sorry for doing this, and then turns around and does it again three weeks later. And you have to forgive them again. 
So that's what we're to say. So if you were to ask, ask me if they don't repent, yes, you should still forgive them. You should still forgive them. Peter is asking if you should forgive seven times. And we want to look at Peter and say, that's a nice try, Peter. But if you have not understood the radical nature of the gospel and you have not understood the radical demands of the gospel, you must, if you understand those things, then you, will, you are called to forgive every sin of every kind, of every weight, and you don't stop. So that's the standard for forgiveness. It gets tougher, though. It gets harder. The second thing I want you to see So that's the standard. Next is the seriousness, the seriousness of extending forgiveness. You must extend forgiveness because remaining in unforgiveness is very dangerous. Lacking forgiveness is dangerous because of what it will do to you, of who it makes you to become. You see, what we see with this man, what does this man do? He's forgiven his debt, but then he walks out of the room as a man who clearly hasn't embraced the forgiveness that he has given. He walks out, he finds the guy who owes him far less than the king owes, that he owes the king, and he goes and essentially grabs the guy and chokes him out. Now, to understand this, here's some deep expositional exegesis of the New Testament and the ancient Near East. This is not an ancient Near Eastern greeting. This is mob boss kind of mentality. I see you, I'm gonna choke you, I'm gonna break something, and if I see you again, you better run. That is what he is, how he's behaving. And if you fail to, to forgive, what happens is the victim becomes the victimizer. The victim will become the victimizer. You become the one who victimizes other people. You sit around and you lick your wounds and you think about how badly you've been treated and you become entitled and hurt and extremely angry. You become vengeful and impatient, such as this guy, right? Pay me now, now, right now. Pay me right now. You become inflexible and unreasonable, impossible to deal with. You become distrusting and very cynical. And for some of you, this has been your story, that someone wounded you deeply five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago and you have been a wrecking ball of woundedness that is hurting everyone around you because as the victim, you are now being the victimizer. Unforgiveness is so juicy and it is so delicious and it might taste so good going down, but in the end, it rots your soul. Anne Lamont, Anne Lamont is kind of like a neo-Orthodox, somewhat liberal writer, but she's got some incredible things to say in the midst of the bizarreness. And she said this, I I went around saying for a long time that I was not one of those Christians who was heavily into forgiveness. (laughs) I'm one of the other kind, she said. But even though it was funny and true, it started to be too painful. In fact, forgiving, I came to find, is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. (laughs) You see, unforgiveness, you think you're poisoning someone else and you're waiting for them to shrivel up and die. But in the end, the actual the result is that you, you have drunk in the poison yourself. And you're the one who's become a shriveled up shell of you, who you once were and who God has made you to be. See, in the end, the one who will not extend forgiveness is mostly wounding themselves. A woman wrote this. She said, I caught my husband making love to another woman. He swore it would never happen again, but I could not, would not forgive him. I was so bitter, so incapable of swallowing my pride that I could think of nothing but revenge. 
I was going to make him pay, and I was going to make him pay dearly. I would have my pound of flesh. I filed for divorce, even though my children begged me not to. And after the divorce, my husband tried for two years to win me back. I refused to have anything to do with him. He had struck first, and I was striking back. All I wanted to do was to make him pay. Finally, he gave up and married a lovely young widow with a couple of young, small children. He began rebuilding his life without me. I see them occasionally, and he looks so happy. They all do. And here I am, lonely, old, miserable woman who allowed her selfish pride and foolish stubbornness to ruin her life. In the end, when you fail to forgive, you ruin your own life. Reuben Carter, I began with an illustration from his life. Reuben Carter came out of jail and he asked the question, don't I have the right to be bitter, to not forgive? But then he went on to say this, I have learned nothing else. If I have learned nothing else in my life, I have learned that bitterness only consumes the vessel that contains it. And for me to permit bitterness to control or to infect my life in any way whatsoever would be to allow those who imprison me to take even more than the 22 years that they have already taken. And that would make me an accomplice to their crime. Listen, very, if I could speak to you very pastorally, I've had many of you sit in my office and I've heard your stories and there are some of you who are still held captive by what your mom and dad said to you because you have failed to, you will, one, you have not embraced the fullness of how deeply they have hurt you and then two, you have not come to a place where you've so embraced Jesus' love and forgiveness to you that you can extend it to them. Some of you are deeply angry at some company out there who lets you go at some point. And there is a festering anger within you. And understand this. When you have something this powerful deep down inside your heart and your soul... It does not just affect that one relationship. It seeps out into all of your relationships. It is so dangerous not to forgive. But it gets way worse than that. Way worse than that. Because as serious as that is, the most dangerous aspect of unforgiveness is where it leads you. It leads you to judgment. It's the end of the parable. What does it say? This man, this man who won't forgive the one who owes him far less than he owed the king, the king summons him back in and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, this is verse 33, and you should not have had mercy, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers, literally in the Greek it says torturers, until he should pay all his debt, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. Forgiveness is serious. It's very serious. Do you see that? Did you hear that last line? Jesus takes it out of the parable and he comes back to the reality for a moment, doesn't he? He gives this story and it's like he's sharing the story that's on the stage and suddenly the camera turns around and it looks straight at you and it says this, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. Boom. Boom. And the question arises as we hear this, okay, Jesus, 
I thought forgiveness was like kind of once and for all thing. Is this salvation by works? Are, are you saved by forgiving other people? Is this a, a, a prid quo, pro quo, that if I forgive, you forgive? Is, is that how this is working? Some people look at this, that's what they say. If I, after, if I give forgiveness, then God will give me forgiveness, and that's how I'm going to earn this, the forgiveness that, that God is offering to me. No, the scriptures are quite clear, and throughout Jesus' teaching, we are saved, we are not saved by anything we have done or by any performance of ours. Our salvation is based on Jesus' performance and his performance alone. We are not saved through the act of forgiving other people. So what is Jesus saying here then? Jesus is not saying if you forgive, you'll go to heaven. If you don't forgive, you'll go to hell. What he is saying, though, is if you don't forgive your brother, your sister, your neighbor, that is a sign in your heart that you have never actually experienced the saving forgiveness of Jesus. That when there is something inherent, there's something lively and living about the forgiveness that Jesus puts in our hearts, that when he says, I have forgiven you, and that has been embraced, that that will inevitably create a fruit of forgiveness towards other people. And if there is no evidence of that fruit in your life, then you should have no confidence that you've actually been forgiven. That's what he's saying. The wicked servant is, is wicked, but not because he doesn't have a heart that has the capacity to show mercy and the reason he doesn't have the heart to show the, the capacity to show mercy. And the reason he doesn't, have to, he doesn't have that is because he has not embraced God's mercy for him. We have a merciful God. So Jesus is not saying that those who forgive get to go to heaven, but his point is that those who are on their way to heaven have been given an unbelievable capacity to forgive those around them. So you get in the picture here? You seeing the standard and the seriousness? You see how big this is? This is so important. If you get this, this will save marriages. This will save relationships with children. This will save churches. This will save communities. But my goodness, this standard seems too much, doesn't it? And the seriousness of it just makes us want to go put our head under a pillow. Where are we going to get the strength to do this? I mean, this is really, really hard. If you've actually ever had to forgive somebody, like, like Reuben Carter forgives somebody, like an actual deeply painful and significant thing. I want you to see here what's interesting is the servant, this servant is excited, almost frantic when he leaves, when he leaves the king's presence the first time. And he doesn't go and forgive. Now, Why? Why doesn't he go forgive? We look at this and we go, my goodness, well, I don't understand it. He's been forgiven so much, and yet he seems to run out of the palace and find the first person he can find to get, extract money from them. What is that showing about what's going on in his heart? It means even though the king has looked at him and said, I have canceled your debt, you owe me nothing, he doesn't believe it. Why is he running around choking people out to try to get money? Because he still believes he has to pay off the debt. He has not embraced forgiveness. You see, while he got off scot-free, he has not comprehended and he has not actually experienced the mercy that has been given to him because mercy has never entered in his heart and therefore it is not shown in his life. So what do we need? The strength that you need, the thing that will give you the strength to forgive the people in your life that has done unspeakably awful things to you, is to experience God's forgiveness of you. And we talk about the experience of God's forgiveness, his extension of forgiveness to us in three ways. Three things that must be experienced in this, as we, as we experience God's forgiveness flowing over us. And the first is this. 
You must experience the enormity of your own debt. And here we come back to the beginning of the parable. I didn't really explain it much. We just know that 10,000 and 100, that, you know, 10,000 of anything versus 100 of something, 10,000 sounds like a lot more. Well, the description of what the, of the servant owes the king is 10,000 talents. What that would literally be uh, quantified to in actual weight is 52 to 83 pounds of gold per talent, per talent. The average of what we see in the ancient world is the average talent of gold weighed 75 pounds. And so what we're talking about here is that this man owes 750,000 pounds of gold. We go on. Let's do the math. If we were to take the gold market from recently where it was about $12,400 per pound of gold, that means this man owes $9.3 billion in today's terms. The ancient tax records that we can find from, from that time period that has, shows four, we found one that has four provinces around Israel. The provinces of Samaria, Judea, Idumea, and Galilee had an annual income from all four of these provinces combined of 900 talents that they sent to the Roman Empire in just in a whole, in one year. Four provinces. That means that this man owes 11 years worth of taxes from the combined taxes of four regions. We go on. The amount of gold that Solomon used for the temple was just over 8,000 talents. This man owes 10,000 talents. Solomon in his heyday was bringing in 666 talents of gold a year. Solomon would have had to save up all his gold and paid off for 15 years to be able to pay off this debt. In other words, what is this text saying? Is, is 10,000 really the issue? No. This is like Jesus. He starts a story like this. It's like a kid's story. It's like he gets up and he says, I, there was a man who owed six gazillion dollars. That's what he's saying. In other words, what he's saying is this is an infinite debt that is impossible to be paid off and be paid back. And yet, you know what's crazy? Is the first servant doesn't seem to know that. What does he say? Do you see how he pleads? He doesn't plead for mercy from the debt. What does he say? Be patient with me and I will do what? I will pay it off. He is delusional. He is. And this is, this is what is called self-righteous, self-righteous delusion in which we think we can actually pay it back. What I want you to see here is that this man does not ask for mercy. He doesn't ask for the debt to be paid. He believes he can pay it back. In other words, for many of us, the reason why we can't forgive, we can't understand forgiveness is because we are so delusional in our pride that it has not allowed us to come to the terms of the fact that we owe God an unpayable debt. The person with a moral superiority complex who looks down at the other offenders and says, I would never do that. That's ridiculous, right? You have done that. If you're a person who is touchy, who is thin-skinned, who is always expecting everyone else to apologize to you, and it only indicates that you have no true apprehension of how much of a debt you owe and, frankly, how rotten you really are. And you will never be humble enough to forgive others until you are humbled by experiencing and seeing just how infinite and unfathomable is the debt that God has forgiven of you. Then, second experience you need to have. You need to experience the pity of God. And I use the word pity on purpose to tick off your heart because no one likes to feel pity. The word pity is the word, though, that is most often used 
to describe Jesus' emotional state in the Gospels. It's actually the word, the same word that's used for compassion. That's how it's usually translated. Compassion. Literally, the word speaks of the bowels. He has moved to compassion. You feel it in your gut. I had this experience earlier this week. I was sitting in Gallery Row, and I was kind of thinking, and I was looking out the door, and there was a woman who came up on the square, and she sat down, and this woman was looked appeared to be in her late 40s or early 50s, and I believe she was homeless. She was carrying around bags, and she was sitting there with two stuffed animals and was rocking them like they were her children. You ever had that's the feeling that Jesus has. When you see somebody like that and you simply want to break into tears, when something inside of you turns over and you go, oh, Lord, have mercy, that's literally what Jesus thought, that thought. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I pity the man. When he sees a blind man, when Jesus comes in this world, he sees a blind man, he has pity. When he sees a leper, he has pity. When he sees a woman who is weeping over the loss of her child, he has pity and he has compassion. The psalmist says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. James writes, the Lord is full of pity and compassion. And later on, James writes, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion, one of un- towards one another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, be pitiful. Be pitiful towards each other. Have pity. This is the key word in Jesus' story in Matthew 18. The servant's master took pity on him, and it is because of that he canceled the debt and let him go. We don't like to use that word, right? Mercy, that's okay. Compassion, that's right. But not pity. A pity offends my pride. Pity says something about my state that I'm like, I'm like down there somewhere. Pity makes us wince. I don't want your pity, we say, but pity is what you need. We all think we're going to be brilliant, strong, and beautiful, but in the end, we are loved and accepted by God on the basis of what? Pity. Pity. So we learn to live in forgiveness. On the cross, see, it was pity that moved the master to pay our debt. On the cross, it was pity that saves the world. Now, you might wonder, where can I go and be around a, a bunch of, a group of pitiful sinners who, who, are, who will be wrong you and hurt you, and yet you'll be able to extend them compassion? Where can you go and find such a group? I introduce you to one another. <laughs> That's what the church is. The kingdom of God is populated by pitiful people who are so indebted that they cannot save themselves. You know, there's something that was interesting this week. You know, one of the Duke basketball had its largest comeback, uh, comeback in the history of its program, its storied program. And the, the players talked about what, what was it that did change the tide for you? Is that they said, Coach K looked at us when we were down. He said, I don't coach losers. That was the speech that got him motivated. Well, you know the speech that Jesus gives us? Jesus Jesus shows up and he says, I only coach losers. (laughs) You want to hear from a commentator, Robert Capone, says this, in heaven there are only forgiven sinners. There are no good guys, no upright, no successful types who can live by their own integrity. There are only those who have been accepted into this great country club in the sky, not by their own success but only those who are failures. There are only failures, only those who have accepted their deaths and their sins and have been raised up by the king who himself died that they might live. So are you pitiful? Embrace your pitifulness. Third and finally, 
You need to experience the costly forgiveness of God. He paid the debt himself. Remember, you cannot simply cancel a debt because we have a God who is both merciful and he is just. And as we sing in song, is where the mercy and the justice of God meet is the cross itself. It's where God says, I long to be merciful to them, but I'm also a just God. Therefore, if I cancel this debt, it doesn't just go away. Somebody has to pay the debt and God says, I will pay the debt. I will pay the debt so that they may be forgiven. Have you heard the expression, there is no free lunch? It may be free to you, but someone had to pay for it, right? If someone bought you lunch, if you went out today and you said, man, Henley, that was such a good sermon that I want to buy you a free lunch. It may be free to me, but it won't be free to you. And neither is your salvation. Without the shedding of blood, it says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The gospel is not the good news of a groundless forgiveness. It is not like God's God's forgiveness in heaven is not like many of us do, and many of us think of forgiveness as, I'm just going to ignore their sin. I'm not not really going to address that. We're just going to push that over there, right? This is how southern families deal with sin, right? We're going to, over there, we're not going to talk about it over here. That's not how God deals with it. We we do not have a groundless forgiveness. God, the gospel is not that God shows up and by an unjust declaration declares my sins forgiven. God will not save anyone by sidestepping his justice, by overlooking the debt of your sin, but he paid the debt himself. And so the greatest need of your life is to know that you have been forgiven at great cost. At great cost. It is the greatest need of your life. It is the beginning of embracing all the rest of God's redemption. It is the only hope that you have for joy, for real, genuine, lasting relationships. The only hope for your marriage and for your relationships with your parents and with your children. The only hope we have as a church is if we embrace this, that it took a great cost to give us forgiveness of sins. The story of a man who was riding on a train heading west in the old American West, and while sitting there watching the dusty landscape go by, the man on the train noticed that there was another young man sitting near him who was looking very low and depressed. The young man confessed that he was a convict who had just been released from a distant jail, and his failures had brought great shame upon his family, had cast a shadow over all of them in his community, and they they suffered because of the shame he had brought on him. And while he was in jail, he had almost no contact with them. He didn't know if, if they, they had no contact with him because they were too poor or if, or if they didn't have the ability to write him. But when he was ready to be released, he finally wrote them a letter, a letter home and explained that he would be on a train soon that would pass their family farm on the way into town. And if they could forgive him, then they were to hang a white ribbon on the old apple tree near the tracks. If it was not hanging there that he, as, as he went by, then he would know he shouldn't bother with them, that he should just move on with his life. And so he's sitting there waiting to get into his town, but as he got closer and closer to his hometown, he became more and more agitated such that he could not sit next to the window. And so he asked this man, hey, would you look at the window and look out at it for me and tell me what you see? So as the man looked out the window for him, he said, in a minute, the family farm came into view A man saw the tree, and he turned to the young convict, and he put his hands on his knee, and with bright tears in his eyes, he whispered hoarsely, it's all right. The whole tree is full of ribbons, not just one. This is how Jesus forgives you, fully, freely, 
abundantly. Do you believe that your sins are forgiven? See, the servant is almost, he's excited, right? Remember, you remember that? Because he doesn't believe his sins are forgiven. And you show that you believe that your sins are forgiven by going and forgiving others. Could I plead with you, if you do nothing today, listen, the, the, what you're, many of you, what you're going to do is you're going to get up, you're going to have a cool conversation, you're going to get in the car, you're going to decide where we're going to go to lunch, and you're going to forget all this. Could I plead with you to actually take 10 minutes this afternoon and think about those who you're actually still offended with? My guess is you can. But even more than that, would you ask God to do this? Plead with him to wash over you with his forgiveness. They would be embraced finally. The way to forgive is to be astonished by the forgiveness of God that has been given to you and that is received by faith and faith alone. Let's pray. Uh, forgiveness, Lord, when we think of salvation, it is, um, it's usually what we think about. But Lord, it so often becomes simply a trite thing to us. It becomes a word in songs and it becomes um, rote. And so Lord, for those in this room who at one point in their life were amazed at your forgiveness. They were amazed at your forgiveness. Would you amaze them again? And Lord, I, I understand and I recognize that I'm, I'm praying a dangerous prayer for these folks. That that, that probably will mean that, they, that some stuff in their life gets revealed. <laughs> that makes forgiveness appear to be amazing again. But would you do it? Lord, I pray that we would come to terms. That we would stop our self-delusion about the debt that we have owed you. And that we add on to day in and day out with our sin. Open our eyes, Lord, to our sinfulness. But don't leave us there. May your spirit flood in and extend to us the grace of forgiveness, that we would feel it, that we would experience it, that it would wash over us. And then, Lord, as we embrace that, that we would go and embrace others, people who have wounded us deeply. I pray that there are some in this room who may have some work to do with a spouse or a child or a mom and dad or a coworker or a friend in which there is a rift, there is an unforgiveness there, there is a bitter root that has been rotting, would they deal with it as you dealt with us? That you didn't remain in the easy boy of heaven, but you addressed our sin by coming and living amongst us, by showing us the pain that it caused you, and showing us what you're willing to take on in order to be in relationship with us. Would we embrace that and extend that to others? Oh, Lord, empower us to do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.